Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time it's episode 92, and we're going to let our freak flag fly. I shall explain. We're also going to talk about what it's like to have a van with no insulation. And we're going to continue the tale of our breakdown. We're going to have a product review of the Co-Re fridge and a resource recommendation that duplicates something you already have but makes it better. Hello everyone, welcome back. Very happy to see you again, or for you to see me again, or however that works. I am currently in Wisconsin. Not someplace I planned on being necessarily, but as you may have heard, we recently had an incident in an Asian country where we brought some people over to the US and they need some help. So I'm here with Team Rubicon to help distribute goods to the Afghan guests that we are now hosting in many of our forts. I happen to be near Fort McCoy in Wisconsin, so I'll be here for about a week to help folks out. But that doesn't mean the show stops. We have to keep on going. Behind me right here, that's my ambulance, and it's kind of blank. I mean, look at the poor thing. Is it an ambulance? Is it something else? What is it? It's got lights, but it kind of doesn't. It doesn't have any signs. It's a poor, confused vehicle, and well, it needs some help. Now, my other van that I built out, Pagurus, the NV200, I was definitely, definitely looking for stealth. I wanted to be able to park anywhere at any time, and I wanted that van to be completely ignorable. And I'm still, still a big fan of stealth. But with this thing right here, stealth is kind of out of the question. Not only is it bigger, I mean, we're talking about a high top sprinter here with bright red stripes down the side and lights on it and vents and, well, heck, it's memorable, it's noticeable, it is anti-stealth. So I'm thinking, screw stealth, let's let the freak flag fly. That's right, I am going to announce to the world that I'm in this thing, and the world can just deal with it. I am going to somehow either wrap it or paint it or something to get decals on the side advertising that I am doing the College of Curiosity thing. I am doing Built to Go. I have a YouTube channel, I have a podcast and Instagram and whatever the heck else they come up with in the meantime. Why not? Why not? If I can't hide, well, I might as well announce myself. And I think that is a totally valid approach. There is no reason to do stealth unless you want to. I mean, stealth is great. I loved being stealth. Nobody knew I was in there. Nobody knew it was a camper, except maybe other campers and maybe the police, but I wasn't bothering anybody ever. Time for something different. I am going to drive a rolling billboard, and I think that is totally legit. Now, first off, I do have something I want people to know about. I want people to know about this channel. I want people to know about the podcast. So rolling advertising is a time-honored tradition, and I'm happy to engage in it. Also, I am, I don't know if the word is proud necessarily, but I am happy to be associated with these things I'm doing, and why not share those with other people? I know that when I'm driving down the road, if I see somebody's URL or hashtag or something like that on their van, I'm instantly curious. I'm the guy that's going to look it up, and I figure there's other folks out there who are curious as to what this vehicle is. Is it an ambulance? Is it something else? Why is it out here? And how can they find out more? So I don't really know 
what exactly I'm going to do. I mean, I've got the hood here. The hood's kind of beat up, um, as is unsurprising for a 10-year-old vehicle. It's got dents in it. Right now it's covered with the assorted insect fauna of Colorado and points east. And uh, on this side, which is the passenger side, I have a very large piece of glass that would be very easy to put a decal on. And I have this big white area, which I desperately want to cover because it has the ghost sign on it that says Faith Community Hospital EMS. Things I do not want to be associated with. Faith, community, EMS, or hospitals. None of those things do I want to be associated with. Well, maybe a little bit of community. And on the driver's side, I don't have anything except a big white wall that I could put whatever I wanted on. And of course, I've got the back. And I mean, there's tons of potential here. I don't exactly know what I'm going to do, though. Wrapping a vehicle of this size is extremely expensive. It could cost as much as $2,000. And I do want it to look nice. So what I'm thinking right now is I'm going to have some decals printed and mailed to me, and then I'm going to try to put them on myself. That might be a mistake because the surface needs to be prepared properly. They need to be applied very gently. And well, I'm not that gentle. Now, what does this mean, abandoning stealth the way I'm proposing? Well, it means I'm more likely to get the knock. To date, in my many, many, maybe a hundred nights sleeping out here or whatever, I don't even know, I've lost count long ago. I've never had a knock. I've never had any problem. I've never had anyone ask me to move, nothing. Every single place I parked, I made it through the night and didn't apparently bother anybody. Perfect. I think it's probably gonna happen with this. So, I will just carry out my plan. And my plan for the knock has always been this. Anybody knocks, asks me to move, I don't care if they're in the right or the wrong, I don't care what the situation is, unless I have paid to be in that space, I will move. That's it. It makes it less stressful for me. I no longer have to worry about a confrontation. It's simply, somebody wants me to move, I will move. And to make that even easier, whenever I pick a place to stay, I always pick two places. I always have a backup place programmed into the GPS or at least written down so I can easily find it. And when I sleep at night, I pretty much make the vehicle ready to go. Maybe not completely. There might be some dirty dishes or clothes on the floor or something like that. But it's not going to take me half an hour to get on the road. I can probably do it in five minutes almost always. Now I'm telling you this not to advertise my own stuff. I'm telling you this to present this as options for you. You can keep doing the stealth thing. I think that's great and awesome and fun. I love it. Or you can let your freak flag fly. There's no reason not to. You're building out a van. You might as well build out the outside too. You can try both. You can do even magnetic signs where if you have a normal van, you can take the signs off. There is a group of folks who like to take a stealth van and put like plumber signs on the sides or maybe diaper delivery service, put on something that people don't want to break into your van kind of a thing, and then you can take them off and become a different van. But for stealth, in my experience, I believe that having any words on your van makes it more memorable, and you're actually better off having nothing on there. Except I'm gonna do exactly the opposite right now. So I'm curious as to what you think or what ideas you might have. I do have logos I can put up there. I've got the hook, walk, a bang symbol, the question mark greater than exclamation point. I have the College of Curiosity logo. I have the Built to Go logo and probably some other things that I've long forgotten about. What should I put on there? 
What would you like to see? You're driving down the road, what do you want to see in a van? Let me know in the comments and heck, I'll try to make it happen. Tech Talk. What if you had a van with no insulation? Well, I've talked a lot about insulation on the podcast uh, and insulation is one of these topics that as soon as you say anything, somebody's going to be mad at you. No, you can't do that. No, you can't do that. You have to use this. You have to do that. It, it's, people get so passionate about something like this. You have to insulate or your van will be useless. Or some people say that if you're in a warm client, insulation is bad and you don't want it. Well, there's actually something to that theory. Think of it this way. Insulation doesn't keep your van cool, nor does it keep it warm. What it does is slow down the transfer of temperature from the outside of the van to the inside. That's all it does. It slows the rate at which your van will reach equilibrium with the environment. More insulation, more time. So if it's warm in your van and it's cold outside, the more insulation you have, the warmer it will stay inside and vice versa in the summer. But as we know, in the summer, air conditioning is a very difficult problem. And this is what happens, and this happened to me in my other well-insulated van. All day long, it's really hot outside, but that's okay because you have insulation. So the cold air in the van sticks around for a while. But towards the end of the day, well, the insulation loses. And the inside of the van gets as hot as it is outside. So it's 6 o'clock, it's 80 degrees outside, it's 80 degrees in your van. Okay. But if you live somewhere, or you're traveling somewhere, where the temperature goes down at night, well, that 80 degrees outside rapidly becomes 70 degrees, and then 60 degrees. But if you have a lot of insulation, well, that 80 degrees is still in your van. There were many nights in my NV200 where I was trying to sleep and I was uncomfortable at 80 degrees in the van, but it was only 71 degrees outside. It was because the insulation was keeping the heat in there. Now, yes, ventilation helps. If you have a lot of ventilation, you can easily swap out the air and get that cold in there. But the insulation has absorbed that heat and will still be giving it off. Now, my ambulance doesn't have insulation. When they built the thing, all they put in was a layer of foam on the ceiling and some reflectix on the ceiling, which pretty much isn't going to do anything. I have added solar panels on the roof, which, yes, are a form of insulation, sort of, more of a barrier. And now I was just in Colorado in this van where it was 100 during the day and 55 at night. And I can tell you that the theory that in hot weather you don't want insulation is pretty much true. I mean, it, did, it was awfully hot in there during the day and I think it would have been a little cooler if I had insulation, but at night it cooled off much, much better than the NV200. So in an ideal situation, you would have insulation you could remove in the summer or put in in the winter if you don't have air conditioning. And well, that's kind of what ventilation is. So no matter what, you want a lot of ventilation. But if you're going to be strictly in hot climates, you may not want to spend any time or money on insulation. You can actually get away with it. A place to visit. This place is going to require a little bit of work. You can't actually get there in a van, but it's well worth it. And it's a little bit unusual and it's named after a pig. It's called Old Sow. Now a sow, if you've not heard that term, is a big old mother pig. It's a kind of a giant pig and you can picture it with a whole bunch of piglets. 
But the reason this thing is named Old Sow isn't because it looks like a pig or has pigs or anything like that. It's because it sounds like a pig. It actually sounds like this. And, well, to somebody, that's what a pig sounds like. Or maybe a piglet? Anyway, this is in Maine, just outside of Bahaba, or Bar Harbor, for those of you that can pronounce ours. And it's uh, just outside Acadia National Park. But you have to take a boat to get there because Old Sow is a whirlpool, like an old-fashioned Scylla and Charybdis-style whirlpool that is in the water, like a giant whirlpool. And so what happens is, Bahaba is right at the southern point of the Bay of Fundy, which is a place with crazy tides. That's the place that you may have seen in National Geographic or whatever, where when the tide is low, the boats are just laying on the ground. But when the tide is high, the boats are up there. You know, they have 60-foot tides. And, well, that means the water comes in and out very, very quickly. And there's this one spot where the geography of the ocean is such that it makes a whirlpool. And you can take boat tours and actually take the boat through the whirlpool. And honestly, it's a little creepy. Um, there's all kinds of legends about Maynaz going to the only place where they can take their boat uphill. And that would be Old Sow. But when you do it as a tourist, well, you're probably going to have some hotshot boat pilot who's going to try to scare you. And, well, that was the case with me when I went in there. And he just drove right into this whirlpool and then kind of messed with the throttle to make it seem like we were going to get sucked into the whirlpool. So far as I know, that has never happened. But it is still a thrill to think that it might. So this is one of those natural wonders that if you're anywhere near the area, you should actually see. And, in this case, here. Old Sow is there much of the day because it doesn't matter if the tide is going in or going out. The whirlpool still forms and it does basically sound like a bathtub emptying out. It's that same shape. Bay of Fundy is a fascinating place. Acadia is a fascinating place. Bahaba is a fascinating place. This is just one little piece of that place. So if you find yourself in Maine this fall doing some fall foliage or whatever, try to take a boat tour. They have whale watches too, and maybe, maybe Old Sal will get you. Tales from the road. Well, I kind of left you with a cliffhanger last time. I was broken down on the side of the road. I wasn't even on a road. In, in uh, Actually, I think I was technically in Mosca, Colorado. It was right outside the Great Sand Dunes. On the, if you ever go down, there's a big, long road that goes to the sand dunes. I was broken down there. I had a bad pipe hose, and I had no way to get a new one. Well, now I'm in Wisconsin, so clearly I found a way out of that problem. As I was talking about troubleshooting and all that, how did I get out of it? Well, I figured that I could drive the vehicle, limp along to a place where I could get a delivery of the hose. I have good friends in Colorado Springs. In fact, that's where I was going anyway. So I decided to mail the part to them. And I used Rock Auto for this because they were the ones who were able to expedite the part shipping. Amazon would have taken 10 days. The Mercedes dealer was something in weeks. It was insane. And Rock Auto could do it in two days. So I ordered it from Rock Auto. I did not get the cheapest one. I did not get the most expensive one. I got one right in the middle, looked like decent quality, paid 25 bucks to have it expedited, well worth it, and had it shipped to my friend. But I still had the problem of getting to Colorado Springs in a vehicle that couldn't go very fast. 
So at 5 a.m., I packed up, hit the road very, very slowly. And first, I was very surprised at how much traffic there was at the Great Sand Dunes at 5 a.m. It wasn't even light out, but there was a lot of traffic. I only had one hill to go over to get to I-25, and that was painful, but it wasn't too bad. And then I got to I-25. And then I was kind of okay, because I-25 has a lot of lanes. So even though I was going incredibly slow, I was doing 20 miles an hour at some points going up hills, there was space for people to go around me. So every time I fell below 50, I hit the hazard lights. Truckers understood, because they run into this all the time, and I just crawled up. But I was a little worried about the van, because it was doing unusual work, so I stopped often and let it cool off. Sprinters don't have any gauges. I don't know why. You can't tell the temperature without a scanner. It seems silly to me, but I didn't want to take any chances. And I did make it to Colorado Springs. I did 140 miles in seven hours. Certainly not the greatest time I've ever had, but I got there and when the part came, it took me three minutes to put it in and then everything was fine. In fact, it's better than fine. That hose may have been leaking for a long time because my van seems to have a whole lot more power now. So the moral of the story is, you know, <laughs> I feel like every tale has to have a moral. The moral of the story is, uh, still don't panic. There is a solution to every breakdown situation in the world. I got lucky. I was able to diagnose the problem and I was able to use the resources I had to fix it. But I wouldn't have been able to do those things if I had panicked. Resource recommendation. I was driving back for, to Chicago from Colorado and I noticed that I had my phone hooked up on my dashboard right next to my big 9-inch screen, or 10-inch screen, I think it is, with CarPlay on it. And I thought, well, I've got this screen there. Why don't I show something useful on it? And I found this app that, well, this is a gearhead thing. You know, you have to like gauges and information. Some people will find this totally distracting, but I kind of like it. And it's called Speedometer Pro. I have an iPhone, it's an Apple app. I'm not sure if there's an Android app or not. If there is, I will have a link for it. But this is exactly what it sounds like. It's a speedometer. And you might think, well, Jeff, uh, most vehicles come with speedometers. I don't know that I need another one. No, you don't need it. But this speedometer does all kinds of crazy things. It will measure the intensity of bumps you go over. It will help you control your music. It will tell you how far away your destination is as the crow flies, and it will show a compass pointing you to your destination so you can see just how far off course you are. Obviously, the roads aren't going to go straight to where you're going, so it shows you how far off they are. It will keep track of how much time you're driving. It will keep track of how much money you're spending if you type in how much you paid for gas, and so on and so on. It's basically an app that somebody has thought of every last piece of data you can extract from a cell phone that might relate to your driving. I have to say that I am enjoying it, and the speedometer is more accurate than the speedometer in your vehicle, because the speedometer in your vehicle is based on wheel rotations, and as your tires wear, that number's gonna change. That's just physics, folks, but the speedometer in this app is based on your GPS, and that speed is based on a satellite pinging your location, which is gonna be super accurate. You can also set alarms. For example, I am trying to stay at the speed limit in my ambulance, so I can set an alarm that it'll make a noise if I go over the speed limit, or if I go five over the speed limit, or whatever. 
Anyway, it's fun. There's a free version that you can try and then you can pay for the pro version that has all the extra features. I think it was $3.99, not terrible. I'll have a link in the show notes, but it's called Speedometer Pro and I like it since the stupid sprinter doesn't come with any gauges. Product review. I am going to review the Kohri, K-O-H-R-E-E, 53 liter fridge, which I bought because it was on sale and put in my van because I figured, hey, I've got a lot more space now so I can have a bigger fridge. And uh, well, it's bigger, but it's honestly too big because it's very tall. Now, a standard for tallness for a refrigerator is, can you sit on it comfortably? Because, hey, we're doing double duty for everything here, right? Or can you slide it under a bed or something like that? And well, this thing is kind of too big for that. It turns out 53 liters is a lot of space. Now you can attach handles and wheels to this, but I have not done so because I haven't figured out exactly what I'm gonna do with it yet. And it's a little funny the way it's configured. It has your standard temperature gauge and plus minus and max eco modes, that's fine. But they're in a way that they're on the hinge of the fridge. So basically the hinge will open away from you? It's, it's very odd. I think that's kind of strange. And then the most surprising thing is on the inside, it's mostly freezer. This thing is four fifths freezer. And well, I thought at first that that was kind of strange, but then I realized that since I have a microwave, that's actually a good thing. I can keep lots of frozen food like this. I'm holding in my hand the epitome of frozen foods, the banquet backyard barbecue meal, which is the frozen food answer to McRibs. And no, you do not have to eat what I eat. Anyway, you fill up the freezer and then you can microwave stuff. And then the, free, the fridge section is much smaller, but it is very tall. You can put in say a whole quart of milk with no problem. And you can fit many, many cans in here. You could probably fit 12 cans in there if you tried. So if you're the kind of person that wants a lot of cold beer in your fridge, this isn't the best solution. Now, this was only about $300 and it is a 12 volt compressor fridge, which I believe are the most efficient fridges to have in vans. And in fact, I think you should only get one of those. And for 300 bucks, it's a great deal, but it does draw a bit of power. Right now, it is drawing close to six amps which isn't terrible, but that is a lot more than my little AlpaCool drew. And it takes a long time to cool down. If you do get one of these, I highly recommend you pre-charge it by putting in frozen water bottles or something like that. It will have a much easier time maintaining the temperature than it will cooling things down. Also, it has vents, very large vents, all around the front, and you have to keep those clear else it gets super, super hot. So I'm not sure this fridge is for everybody. While I do like it, it is a bit big. They do make a 45 liter version that probably makes more sense. And it's really for somebody who wants more of a freezer than a fridge. And I had to convert myself to that. If I didn't have a microwave, I think I would be annoyed with all the freezer space, but it is cold enough to keep ice cream in. And well, that's pretty good. Now I have it set at 24 degrees right now. That's kind of warm for a freezer, but home freezers are designed to keep food cold for months. This thing just has to keep food cold for a week or so. 
So 24 is actually good enough for frozen food for me. Uh, I just won't keep any raw meat in there very long because even though it's frozen, it's not frozen enough and it can go bad. So I'll have a link in the show notes to this. It is the Kori. It may be an option for you if you need a big freezer and a little fridge and you have space to put a gigantic thing, the Kori could work. Q&A. I had a conversation with someone recently about the best way to attach wires in a vehicle. Now, vehicles have different requirements than at home. Not only do you have the DC-AC thing, which isn't that much of an issue for connections, but basically stuff in your house doesn't move and stuff in your van does. So while in your home, it's okay to use solid wire, Romex in some places, or just strips of solid wire running conduit, if that's what the code is, as it is in Chicago, in a van, you want stranded wire because stranded wire is flexible. It can handle vibrations and moving without breaking. So in your home, you might put wires together with a wire nut, but that is not, not the right solution for a vehicle. If you were going to attach two wires to each other in a van, what you want is called a butt connector. That's right, B-U-T-T connector because the two wires abut each other, basically. They're going butt to butt. It is a very simple thing. They usually come in red, blue, or yellow, and that tells you the size. Red is for very thin wires, 18 gauge, 16 gauge, blue maybe 14, 12 gauge, and then yellow 10 gauge and higher. But you're not gonna get too high. 10 and eight maybe. Four gauge, you're not gonna fit in one of these. You'll have to get a special one that is usually copper. They're pretty simple to use. You strip the wire on both ends just a little bit, put it into the butt connector one at a time, and then you crush the end with a special tool. Yeah, you can use a hammer or something, but you're actually much better off using the special tool. You will get a better crimp. And then you do what's called a pull test. You pull the wires to make sure they don't fall out. And then you can either <laughs> have already put shrink wrap on the wires and you can heat, heat shrink it, or you can just tape it up. Or if it's in a dry location, you really don't have to do anything. But you should know about butt connectors. Butt connectors are a very good thing to know. They're used mostly in vehicles, not so much in houses, and they're fairly inexpensive. I'll have a link in the show notes to more information about butt connectors and where you can get them, but if you need to go buy some, your auto parts store is probably the best place. Well, folks, thanks very much for listening or watching this episode 93. I absolutely appreciate each and every one of you. My goal is to have this video podcasting perfected by episode 100. So your feedback is super important to me. Please let me know what I'm doing wrong so I can fix it. Music, as always, is by Simon Wagg. And until next time, remember this quote by Helen Keller. Keep your face to the sunshine and you cannot see a shadow. <laughs>